Part 2 of Chapter 19 of The Necessity of Atheism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Wesseling. The Necessity of Atheism by David Marshall Brooks. Chapter 19. Part 2. THE DOOM OF RELIGION, THE NECESSITY OF ATHEISM It is with a great deal of regret that the freethinker contemplates the attitude of such scientists as Jeans, Eddington, Millikan, and the philosopher Professor Whitehead. Their hesitation to divorce themselves completely from all conceptions of a supernatural force leads to a great deal of confusion. An acquaintance with the writings of Einstein brings one the certainty that he is as much in accordance with the attitude of free thought as is the most militant atheist. The cosmic sense and totality of existence of Einstein is as far removed from the conception of a Yahweh as is the mentality of an Australian black man from that of Einstein's mental grasp. Similarly with the cosmic consciousness expressed in the writings of Jeans, Eddington, and Whitehead. With characteristic disregard for the truth, certain modern theologians have grasped this cringing attitude of the above-mentioned men and have stressed their viewpoints by a dishonest interpretation that these men actually give a scientific certitude to their own theologic creeds and dogmas. Nothing can be further from the truth. The free thinker would have each theologian who tells his adherents that these men lend credence to their beliefs to consider the following. If the above-named men would be asked if they believed in a deity who actively interposed his will and influence in the lives of men, as is commonly expressed in the term providence, if they ascribed to the belief in personal immortality, if they themselves believed in the existence of a soul, if they ascribed to the statement that prayer influenced the opinion of an all-powerful being to intercede for them in their problems and grief, if they believed that the Bible was a book dictated by God, or that a God caused to be written for him his revelations, that heaven and hell exist in the meaning that theologians assure their adherents that they do, that man and morality is what theologians still hold it to be, that there has been a fall and therefore the necessity for a redemption of man, and that creed and dogma are necessary factors in the worship of a deity, what would their answers be? Eddington, Jeans, Einstein, and Whitehead would answer these questions exactly as would the most militant atheists. The mental attitude of these men can best be explained when one considers certain similarities between theological asceticism and scientific asceticism. And it is the duty of the free thinker clearly to point out why this confusion has arisen. During the ages of faith, the world beheld a swarm of men and women who retired from the grim realities of a world which at that time was made abhorrent to all sensitive men by the most exacting insistence of theologians that faith was the all-necessary ingredient of life 
and that closed its eyes completely to the degrading actualities of life that this insistence led to. Multitudes of men retired to the desert and to the protective walls of monasteries. There, by constant privations, fastings, continual prayer, flagellation, and introspection, they spent their lives. These ascetic individuals, by these means, were enabled to enter what may be called a theologic trance, and their subsequent hallucinations, illusions, and delusions gave to them what they deemed to be a transcendental insight into the construction of the universe and what was expected between fallen and debased man and his omnipotent creator. These men keenly apprehended what some today in a gentler age have called cosmic consciousness. I do not mean to imply that these before-mentioned scientists have applied such a rigor to their lives. What is meant to be stated is that these men, by their research and comprehension of the vastness of the universe, stand in awe and fear before this brain-benumbing aspect. Modern astrophysics, to one who attempts to comprehend its vastness, imposes on the mind but a faint comprehension of the vastness of the universe in space, time, and size, but imposes a deep conviction of the infinitesimal meaning of our planet Earth, both as to size and its relation to the millions of related heavenly bodies. The evolution of man on our planet in this broad conception of space and time, is most infinitesimal. It has been just a few hours ago, in this widened conception of time, that Halley's Comet was excommunicated from the skies by Pope Calixitus III, who looked upon this comet as one of unheard-of magnitude, and from the tail of which was flung down upon earth disease, pestilence, and war. Most certainly the minds of Jeans and Eddington carry in their recesses a vast amount of knowledge that was not common to men living in 1456, the year in which the above-mentioned comet caused such consternation. Much as one admires the superiority of the minds of these present-day physicists, Yet one cannot help but think that if our present rate of progress meets no serious obstacle, then in another five hundred years the attitude of awe of Jeans and Eddington towards the vastness of our universe will be held in some similar position to which Jeans and Eddington now hold the misguided conception of Halley's Comet in the year 1456. The mind of man is just beginning to emerge from its swaddling clothes, and we cannot assume to judge what its broadest capabilities may be. Certain great modern minds, therefore, when they contemplate this vastness of astrophysics, are apt to dwell a bit too literally on the music of the heavenly spheres, and under the influence of these celestial harmonies fall into the trance of scientific asceticism. Men who can no longer seriously hold to a belief in an anthropomorphic god, the soul, and immortality, are apt to allow themselves, when in this mood, to emotionalize their knowledge. And these same men are the ones who would, in their scientific endeavors, be the first to eliminate all emotions from their reasoning efforts in their laboratories. 
One seems justified, therefore, in stating that this conception of cosmic consciousness is but another instance of the mere illusions of a craving heart. Discussing the question as to whether science and religion conflict, the physicist Professor Bazzoni of the University of Pennsylvania, in a recent work, Energy and Matter, makes the following pointed comment. Some scientists resort to metaphysics and make contact with a kind of mysticism which may be taken for a religious belief at precisely that point where ignorance prevents further progress along sound scientific lines. The primitive medicine man appealed to the gods to explain the precipitation of rain and the phase changes of the moon and some modern scientists appeal to metaphysics and mysticism to explain the limits of the infinite and the nature of electricity. He further cautions theologians against placing undue emphasis on the opinions of scientists when they express their minds on religious topics, and he remarks, They, the laity, should realize that in the spiritual field the opinion of an eminent scientist has exactly the same weight as the opinion of any other cultivated and thoughtful individual. When the scientist examines with the impartial mind of the laboratory the science of the origin of religious beliefs and delves into the complicated intricacies of religious history, he becomes as convinced as any other thoughtful individual that the facts of science and history are deadly to religion. Moreover, as man contemplates the construction and forces at work in the universe, he still must exclaim, end, beginning, or purpose it knows not of. The theologians are devoting a great deal of their time to the writings of physicists who venture into the field of theology. It may be that in this manner they can divert attention from the drastic findings concerning all religious beliefs that the anthropologists and psychologists are patiently accumulating. Many physicists and biologists like Pupin, Millikan, Oliver Lodge, J. Arthur Thompson, and Henry Fairfield Osborne have recently blossomed forth as liberal theologians. They are still emotionally attached to the older religious faith. They are aware that modern physics and biology have abandoned doctrines that once were hostile to religious claims. They, therefore, proclaim that there is no further conflict between religion and science. In so doing, however, they show themselves abysmally ignorant of all that anthropology and psychology have done to study religion and religious man scientifically. They show their ignorance of the philosophy that has built upon such data. They do not realize that the present-day conflict between religious faith and science is no longer with a scientific explanation of the world, but with a scientific explanation of religion. J. H. Randall and J. H. Randall, Jr., Religion and the Modern World. The cultured Greeks and Romans had their omnipotent gods, and these have long ago died a death of ridicule. At a time when beauty and sculpture were at their height, the religion of these ancient artists was absurd. Similarly, with some of our modern scientists, their religion has not kept pace with their intellect. Their emotions have overbalanced their reason in this field. 
Professor H. Levy of the University of London tersely remarks, The assertion of contemporary scientists who state that the universe is a fickle collection of indeterminate happenings, and a great thought in the mind of its architect, a pure mathematician, serves merely to divert the activity of the scientific brain from its concentration on the contradictions and confusions of the all-too-real outward world to a state of passive and unreal contemplation. Professor H. Levy, The Universe of Science Among the theologians, some at least have learned the futility of waxing indignant at each new scientific hypothesis that encroached, as they thought, within their domain. A great many liberal theologians have as yet not learned the extreme danger to their theology in grasping at some concept of science that for the present moment does not appear to be detrimental to their theology, or, as they think, seems to bolster up their particular creed. The enthusiasm aroused in certain theological circles by recent developments in mathematical physics, states Dr. M. C. Otto, seems to me to indicate just one thing, that these theologians felt themselves to be in so desperate a state that a floating straw assumed the appearance of a verdure-clad island. I am of the opinion that all persons who work for a more decent and happy existence for themselves and for their fellows must turn their backs upon religion just to the extent that religious leadership seeks spiritual renewal in these hallucinations of despair. Doctors Weeman, Mackintosh, and Otto. Is there a God? It is only proper to point out that what certain emancipated minds are trying to reconstruct as a basis of religious belief is not what is held by the masses as their conception of religion. In a recent clear and frank statement of the religious revolution, John Herman Randall and John Herman Randall, Jr. state, Such beliefs, even so fundamental a one as belief in God, must stand their chances with the philosophic interpretation men give their experience. The really revolutionary effect of the scientific faith, so far as religion is concerned, has been not its new view of the world, but its new view of religion. Reinterpretations of religious belief have been unimportant compared with reinterpretations of religion itself. For those who have come to share the scientific world view, even more for those who have absorbed the spirit of scientific inquiry, it has been impossible to view religion as a divine revelation entrusted to man. It has even been impossible to see it as a relation between man and a cosmic deity. Religion has rather appeared a human enterprise, an organization of human life, an experience, a social bond, and an inspiration. J. H. Randall and J. H. Randall, Jr. Religion and the Modern World To the man who literally entreats his deity, our Father, who art in heaven, grant us our daily bread, the above reinterpretation of what is meant by religion can have no meaning. To the cultivated mind that comprehends what is meant, the above interpretation is what he conceives of as his social secular activities for the betterment of his fellow men. A living philosophy of life 
is a much better name for this attitude than is the misnomer religion, and avoids a great deal of confusion. Some of our scientists on a holiday, as they have been facetiously called when they stepped into a field in which they had not become well acquainted with the ground, have proceeded to lend assurance that God is, by subtracting so drastically from what is generally attributed to the conception of God, that there is nothing much left to what they conceive as what God means. They have stripped the conception of what has been heretofore regarded as fundamental, namely the conception that God is a superhuman personality or mind. In Mr. Whitehead's philosophy, God is spoken of as... God is not concrete, but he is the ground for concrete actuality. I believe such confusion of language may have been in the mind of Dr. Max Carl Otto when he remarked, Some persons endeavor more than ever to make necessary distinctions to keep meanings as clear as possible, and to have an eye on the tendency of language to become its own object. Other persons repudiate these obligations. They act as if it were a virtue to love darkness rather than light, if your intentions are good. Under their manipulations, conceptions are dimmed or replaced by vague imitations. One boundary line after another is obliterated until the whole substance of things swims in mists. History has illustrated that the greatest source of evil on this planet has arisen from the fact that physical phenomena for which our limited mental capacities were not able to formulate a logical solution were ascribed to preternatural causes. From this original stem arose religion and the church, the two greatest obstacles which have been a burden to mankind for two thousand years and a barrier to all progress which has made life endurable and desirable. The lower man is in the scale of civilization, the more does he call in the supernatural to explain all the happenings and experiences of his life. When he had been beset by an intellectual failure, he had been thrown back to religion. Lacking the courage and mental capacity to proceed further against obstacles, he succumbed to the drug of religious explanations. The need was not for a narcotic, but for a stimulant. The mental stimulant was provided for man in the form of science. Science is but organized knowledge, and it is this knowledge that has elevated man to the position where he is now, his own god. When difficulties confront him in this age, he blames them upon his own ignorance and incompetence. And when he sets about to overcome these difficulties, he does not rely on divine revelation or supernatural aid or on miracles. He relies on his reason. He knows that when a problem eludes his mental capacity, it is not the supernatural which eludes him, but some natural force some law which he has not been able to grasp as yet. There is no resignation in this attitude, only resolute, peaceful patience. The problem that he cannot solve at present will yield to his reason eventually. The ecclesiastic is well aware that science is his natural and implacable enemy. He knows that every time the bounds of exact knowledge are widened, the domain of religion is narrowed. 
man's knowledge of the universe is still incomplete, but it is certainly more complete than it was fifty years ago. And when we consider what that knowledge was a few thousand years ago, it is no breach of logic to state that all natural processes, in the course of time, will be brought into the confines of invariable laws. Sir Arthur Keith clearly states, The ancient seeker, to explain the kingdom of life, with man as its regent, had to call in the miracle of creation. The modern seeker finds that although life has the appearance of the miraculous, yet all its manifestations can be studied and measured, and that there is a machinery at work in every living thing which shapes, evolves, and creates. His inquiries have led him to replace the miracle of creation by the laws of evolution. Whichever department of the realm of nature the man of science has chosen for investigation, the result has always been the same. The supernatural has given place to the natural. Superstition is succeeded by reason. The world has never had such armies of truth-seekers as it now has. Those equipped with ladders of science have so often scaled the walls which surround cities of ignorance that they march forward in the sure faith that none of nature's embattlements are impregnable. In the last analysis, if we reach a point in thinking where we cannot proceed further, a fathomless landmark, must we revert to the theological error of thinking and assume it must be of supernatural character? Because the unknown in the past has been assigned to the supernatural is no indication for us also in the present age to relegate the unknown to divine cause. It is unseemly that minds that have emancipated themselves should go just so far, as far as their own reason can explain the unknown, and when their limited reason can go no further, to revert back to the primitive stage where solution is considered impossible to man, save it be revealed to him by God. If man's mind is free, if no coercion of any kind is placed on its exercise, it will expand and unravel what at present is still fathomless. Give man endless centuries and ample opportunities, and he will unravel the miracles of development and growth, just as he has done other miracles, which at first seemed impossible of rational solution. For how much longer will man be a slave to his inferiority complex with regard to his own rational capacities? If faith is vital to man, why not relate it to that which at least holds a promise of solution? Man's mind has not as yet arrived at the point which might even give the slightest indication of its ultimate exhaustion. We cannot assume the knowledge of what man's fullest capacities are. All things must unravel themselves with the progress of his mind. Those things which he cannot explain now, he must not assign to a superhuman force. Man must use his reasoning faculties to investigate and search for the truth, so that these unknown may become part of the known. Again to quote Sir Arthur Keith, Only eighty years have come and gone since the anatomist obtained his first glimpse of the structural complexity of the human brain. 
It will take him 8,000 years and more to find out the exact part played by every departmental unit of this colossal system of government, which carries on the mental life of a human being. We have no reason to think there is anything supernatural in its manifestation. As our knowledge of the brain accumulates, the names and terms we now use will give place to others which have a more precise meaning. In our present state of ignorance, we have to use familiar and loose terms to explain the workings of the brain. Such words as soul, spirit, heart, superstition, and prejudice. These manifestations of the mind will be dissected and made understandable. Science has as yet not fully explained the origin of life on earth, but there is reason to believe that it will do so in the future. The laws governing the production of life itself are under investigation in the laboratories, and it is highly probable that this law will be unraveled at some future date. It will be interesting for our posterity to witness the confusion of the ecclesiastics and their attempted confirmation of this fact in the Bible, their finding of some obscure phrase that will be interpreted by them as a prediction of the fact in the Bible. The theists have maintained, as we have seen, many false beliefs that have cost the lives of innumerable men, and suffering incalculable beliefs which they themselves have subsequently recognized as false, but relinquished only by the onslaught of rising secular knowledge. It was the ecclesiastic who pointed to the God-dictated phrase, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live, and the various precepts that have been enumerated in the preceding chapters. Surely sufficient evidence has been noted to convince a thinking being that reason is a better guide than theism. Belief in the antithesis of reason. Reason is rationality. Religious belief is clearly mental abnormality. If a religionist is asked what he thinks of a secular institution which vigorously condemns and persecutes inquiry, experiment, and truth, he will reply with the logical answer. When it is pointed out to him that religion has done and still is doing this, he will hem and haw until he manufactures some illogical answer. It has been stated that the more we think, the less we believe, and that the less we think, the more we believe. The Christian will analyze the creed of the Mohammedan and find it ridiculous. The Mohammedan analyzes the creed of the Christian and in turn finds it ridiculous. That is thinking. But does the Mohammedan or the Christian analyze as critically each his own belief? Will he endeavor to analyze it at all? That is believing. The ecclesiastic concerns himself not with truth or knowledge. It is creed which is his shrine. He definitely is at war with knowledge, and he wants to learn only such things as fit in with his preconceived notions and prejudices. When the minds of men are from infancy perverted with these ideals, how can mankind build a virile race? It is often asserted that the alleged universality of the belief in God is an argument for its truth. But what of the fact that men had everywhere come to the conclusion that the earth was flat, 
and yet a wider and truer knowledge proved that universal belief to be false. In the discussion of witchcraft, it has been shown that a delusion may be as widespread as a truth. During the 10th and 11th centuries, the Spanish Moors had recognized the sphericity of the earth and were teaching geography from globes in their common schools. Rome, during the same ages, was asserting in all its absurdity the flatness of the earth. It was not until almost 500 years later that Rome was forced to see its absurdity, and then only when the enlightened world mocked at its error. In this 20th century, certain enlightened men are teaching the absurdity and harmfulness of a belief in a deity. Must it take 500 years for all mankind to come to a similar conclusion? May it not well be that in a few centuries our posterity will view belief in a deity in the same light that we in this age view the church's inconsistence that the earth was flat? The God idea has been one of the most divisive and antisocial notions cherished by mankind. In fact, it has been asserted that the idea of God has been the enemy of man. It has driven multitudes of men and women into the unnatural asceticisms and wasted lives of the convent and abbey. It has taxed the economic resources of every nation. Every church, no matter of what creed, is a pathetic monument of God-ridden humanity which has been built by the pennies sweated by the poor, and wrested from them by fraudulent promises of reward, appeals to fear, and the pathetic human tendency to sacrifice. The theologians have in their arguments resorted to philosophy. The consequence of this transference of the idea of God to the sphere of philosophy is the curious position that the God in which people believe is not the God whose existence is made the product of an experimental argument, and the God of the argument is not the God of belief. It is a nice question, remarks Walter Lippmann, whether the use of God's name is not misleading when it is applied by modernists to ideas so remote from the God men have worshipped. Plainly the modernist churchman does not believe in the God of Genesis who walked in the garden in the cool of the evening and called for Adam and his wife who had hidden themselves behind a tree, nor in the God of Exodus who appeared to Moses and Aaron and seventy of the elders of Israel standing with his feet upon a paved walk as if it were a sapphire stone, nor even in the God of the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, who in his compassion for the sheep who had gone astray, having turned every one to his own way, laid upon the man of sorrows the iniquity of us all. Walter Lippmann, A Preface to Morals it is one kind of God that is being set up in argument, and it is really another God that is being depended upon and believed. The philosophical conception of a deity that may be in control of phenomena is an impersonal physical law, and has nothing to do with the conception of a personal deity to whom people pray for active intervention in their troubles. Religious belief is a monstrous apparition, the philosophy of atheism is a solid structure laboriously founded on solid rock. 
The philosophy of atheism had temporarily failed in previous ages, since the knowledge of those ages did not furnish facts enough upon which to build. At the present, although our knowledge is far from complete, and the surface has only been scratched, yet sufficient facts have been unearthed to reveal that there is no supernatural, and the greatest hope of advancement lies in the philosophy of atheism. A philosophy that builds upon a foundation of purely secular thought, that leaves the idea of God completely discarded as a useless and false relic of bygone days, is the essence of atheism. Atheism is more than the speculative philosophy of a few, that it is, in sober truth, the logical outcome of mental growth. So far as any phase of human life can be called inevitable, atheism may lay claim to being inescapable. All mental growth can be seen leading to it, just as we can see one stage of social development giving a logical starting point for another stage, and which could have been foretold had our knowledge of all the forces in operation been precise enough. Atheism is, so to speak, implicit in the growth of knowledge. Its complete expression is the consummation of a process that began with the first questionings of religion. And the completion of the process means the death of supernaturalisms in all forms. Circumstances may obstruct its universal acceptance as a reasoned mental attitude, but that merely delays it does not destroy the certainty of its final triumph. Chapman Cohen The philosophy of atheism leads man to a critical, analytical, and logical examination of his environment, and it is this that has led to all of our advances. Religion creates a stunted standard of reasoning. The pathetic cry of St. Augustine but if I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me, where, I pray thee, O my God, where, Lord, or when was I thy servant innocent, typifies the major concern of the narrow, egotistical mystic. From the time that the ideas of the later Greek philosophers had been forgotten, until the present time, man has floundered in a sea of supernaturalism. It is high time that man faced his realities with fortitude in his own mentality. And when he does this, there will be produced a race of men who will seek for truth, for truth's sake, a race of supermen who will lead the world intellectually. It is to Russia that all eyes will turn in the next few generations. At the present, she is going through the throes of childbirth. She is immature and as a child she staggers. The abuse and ridicule heaped upon her now is but the repetition of that given by all frightened societies of past ages, when they contemplated new ideas which their immature minds could not fathom. But Russia will emerge in the not-too-distant future, and the infant will shortly reach maturity, and that maturity may set a standard for those timid and frightened societies that at present look with dilated eyes upon her daring. The age is approaching when the god idea in its entirety will be classed with the gods of the Egyptians and Babylonians, 
when surplices and sacramental plate will be exhibited in museums, when nurses will relate to children the legends of the Christian mythology, as they now tell them fairy tales. The gods of monotheism will join the gods of polytheism, and Yahweh and his associates will occupy in the minds of men the position now held by the gods of Olympus. To our ancestors, Jupiter and Yahweh will have the same significance. In a little time, the cathedrals and churches will have taken upon themselves the proud, poetical glamour of abandoned temples. Men and women will enter them with reverent indulgence as they now in meditative mood visit the few remaining pantheons of the pagan worship. Cluellen Powys, An Hour on Christianity The age is approaching when the current idea of the hereafter will be accounted a strange and selfish idea. Just as we smile at the savage chief, who believes that his station will be continued in the world beneath the ground, and that he will there be attended by his concubines and slaves. The age is fast approaching when love, not fear, will unite the human race. In that age, the ideal, not the idol, will be the truth, and the one faith, not religion, but a sincere and lofty conception of the dignity and resourcefulness of the human mind and an overwhelming desire to aid in the progress of all mankind, the extinction of disease, the perfection of genius, the perfection of love, and therefore the abolition of war, the exploration of the infinite, and the conquest of creation. Such an age can never come to be during the maljurisdiction of a theistic philosophy. It can only come into being when the vast majority of men are by the force of advancing knowledge made aware of the truth of the atheistic philosophy. An English observer, C. E. M. Jode, remarks, The churches, no doubt, will continue to function for a time, but they will be attended increasingly and in the end exclusively by ignorant men, women, and children. Already, a stranger attending an average Church of England service would almost be justified in assuming that the churches, like theatre matinees, were kept up for the benefit of women and children. So far as present indications go, it seems not unlikely that science will deliver the coup de grace to organized Christianity within the next hundred years. We have caught a glimpse of what theism has done and what the philosophy of atheism might have done and will yet achieve. Has man profited by having remained in his mental infancy so long? Atheism is an emancipating system of thought that frees the mind from myths, fables, and childish fancies. There can be no inquisition, no witchcraft delusion, no religious wars, no persecutions of one sect by another, no impediment to science and progress, no stultification of the mind as a result of its teachings. The philosophy of atheism teaches man to stand on his own feet, instills confidence in his reasoning powers, and forces him to conquer his environment. It teaches him not to subject himself and debase himself before mythical superhuman powers, 
for his reason is his power. The march from faith to reason is the march on which dwells the future hope of a really civilized mankind. Atheism teaches man to endeavor constantly to better his own condition and that of all his fellow men, to make his children wiser and happier. It supplies the powerful urge to add something new to the knowledge of mankind. And all this, not in the vain hope of being rewarded in another world, but from a pure sense of duty as a citizen of nature, as a patriot of the planet on which he dwells. There is no cold and cheerless philosophy. It is an elevating and ennobling ideal which may console him in his afflictions and teach him how to live and how to die. It is a self-reliant philosophy that makes a man intellectually free, and this mental emancipation allows him to face the world without fear of ghosts and gods. It relates solely to facts, while theism resorts to opinions that are grounded only upon emotionalism. Joseph Lewis has well noted that Atheism does not believe that man's mission on earth is to love and glorify God, but it does believe in living this life so that when you pass on, the world will be better for your having lived. The history of the past ages informs us what the world was like with God. The progress of secular knowledge and science have given us measures by which we could produce a better society than has ever existed under the obstructionism of the gods. The knowledge exists by which universal happiness can be secured. The chief obstacle to its utilization for that purpose is the teaching of religion. Religion prevents our children from having a rational education. Religion prevents us from removing the fundamental causes of war. Religion prevents us from teaching the ethics of scientific cooperation in place of the old fierce doctrines of sin and punishment. It is possible that mankind is on the threshold of a golden age. But if so, it will be necessary to slay the dragon that guards the door. And this dragon is religion. Bertrand Russell it is interesting to contemplate the changes that may occur in our civilization in the next few centuries. On the one hand, we have that long period of sterile time, 15,000 years, for the stage of Neolithic man, and on the other, the vast material progress of the past 300 years. We may not be able to discern with clarity in what direction changes will occur, but in one aspect, we can discern a well-marked tendency. That is the inevitable conquest of the philosophy of atheism. And with this conquest can be clearly seen that it would give to this earth a much sounder foundation upon which to build our progress, and that long-delayed freedom, the emancipation of the mind from all myths and fables. The inevitableness of atheism has been well summed up by Chapman Cohen. Looking at the whole course of human history, and noting how the vilest and most ruinous practices have been ever associated with religion, and have ever relied upon religion for support, the cause for speculation is not what will happen to the world when religion dies out, 
but how human society has managed to flourish while the belief in the gods ruled. Substantially, we have by searching found out God. We know the origin and history of one of the greatest delusions that ever possessed the human mind. God has been found out. Analytically and synthetically, we understand the God idea as previous generations could not understand it. It has been explained, and the logical consequence of the explanation is atheism. Man is fast attaining a mastery of his environment, and his religious creeds are becoming as irrational to him as the witchcraft delusion. Religion, with its burden of fear, ties him to the dead ages. But knowledge not only supplies him with power, but also furnishes him with courage, and that courage will aid him in freeing himself from that fear, religion. Religion is doomed to occupy the same place in history as the institution of slavery. Lies and imposture, no matter how powerfully sustained, can be dispelled by knowledge. The church will destroy itself with its own poison. Knowledge and courage spell the doom of religion. End of part two of chapter 19.